Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. So, uh, I don't know how many of you have uh, come home from a long trip as I have, and you've been in a hotel on a hard bed or a lumpy one. Or one of the things they do in Airbnbs now is they put in these, I guess they're like the memory foam mattresses, but they're cheap memory foam mattresses. And like for me, I don't know if it's because of my weight or build or what, but I lay in them and I can't move. I'm like stuck there. Anyway, and I just get home. You all know the feeling. You get home after a long day of work or after vacation, you get in your bed and it's warm and clean and you just relax. Or another image, you take the first bite of cheesy warm lasagna that your mom makes and you're like, oh, this is heaven. Or you drink that perfectly cool gulp of water on a hot summer day. Or uh, Brenda's not up here for me to, to uh, laud her, so Kayla gets the attention this morning. You bite into one of those delicious chocolate chip cookies. And it's just like, uh, or... Uh, when you sit at a table with friends after a good meal and everyone's laughing, enjoying themselves, and yeah, at least for me, I love those moments where you can just kind of sit back and watch people interacting, and it's like, this is like heaven on earth, right? This is, this is, this is what we were made for. All of those experiences are little tastes, they're little foreshadows of, of heaven. They're wonderful, and yet in an even greater way, what we see throughout the scripture is that those moments are, are a foretaste of heaven, but the church itself, God gave us the church to give us the greater and even more compelling foretaste of heaven. And all of those things come out of the blessings that we have in the church. The church is to be like that. It's to be like a warm bed after a long vacation. It's to be like a chocolate chip cookie, right? It's the place where your soul is satisfied, where your heart it's full of delight in Jesus. And so there's a place you can stop in church, like I did this morning as we're all singing. Look around, that's probably why there were tears in your eyes when you came up. <laughs> to look around and relish it and be like, oh, wow, God is here. This is good. This is what we long to be. This is what we long to do. And as our first morning gathering, our launching point, our first week as a real church, I want to call your attention to this longing within us and to God's vision for this, in particular from, from this text. This last week, we, were, we spent in our community group thinking about Isaiah 66, where God is basically promising what's coming in his kingdom. And it reads like this, it says, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, you shall nurse, you shall be carried on her hip and bounced on her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I'll comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. That, that's a picture of heaven, right? That's a picture of heaven coming down in and among God's people. That is better than a chocolate chip cookie, if that's possible, right? <laughs> if it's possible, right? Uh, the church in Corinth, however, when we come to this text, they're not like a chocolate chip cookie. They're like the kind of cookie where the person making it accidentally puts in salt rather than sugar. Have you ever been to one of those cookies? 
I have. That's not a good thing. <laughs> You're like, ugh. And you look at the church of Corinth, and on the surface, this church, though they started well, though they started with the gospel, though they started um, as, a, as a place where the gospel was flourishing these people, they have, um, they become like an overly salted cookie and kind of leave a bad taste in your mouth. Um, this church is divided. That's just one of their issues. They are so divided that they are not caring for one another well. They're suing one another. They're neglecting the poor. They're using the spiritual gifts as an opportunity to compete with one another and to try to look more spiritual than one another. It has just devolved into the typical reason why a lot of people will leave churches, right? And a lot of them, one of the main complaints among churches as well, Christians are just fighting with one another, debating one another, in competition with one another, and divided. And, you know, churches like that, people walk on eggshells around one another. It's uncomfortable, awkward. They're suspicious of one another. And in Corinth, they were, they were at odds with one another. One faction sat over here, and another one sat over there. And we can see that clearly in our, in our text. It says there in the verses right before it, um, that you are still of the flesh, in verse 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. And this church was truly divided. They were not fulfilling that image of God being present. They, they were a salty cookie, right? <laughs> they looked more like the, the, the Senate and the House of Representatives. Dems on one side, Republicans on the other, and looking at each other with suspicion and accusing one another of all the most horrible things they can think of about one another. That's, that's, and unfortunately, um, that's where this church was, and that's obviously not where we want to be. That's not where any church wants to be. It's a, it's a horrible place to be. And Paul speaks into this circumstance. He speaks into this situation to correct them, to heal them, to show them a better way. And he does it a lot of ways. And there's a lot of detail here that we're not going to cover but I believe he wants to speak to us today to help us direct our work in planting this church so that we can chart a course that makes Emmaus the place that where heaven invades anything. To make us the place that people walk into and they're like, oh, that's a warm, delicious chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> so he does, that. he does this in two ways. He gives them two images. He puts two images before them. And it's interesting that Paul does this because, you know, he doesn't give like a logical argument. There's logic in it, no doubt. But he does it with imagery. And he does it with very pervasively biblical imagery. He lays before them the image of garden and the image of temple. The image of garden and temple. D.A. Carson, in his description, he alliterated. He said he gives them an agricultural and an architectural image. Um, and you see that come through the text. You see it come through and so I just want to break this text up into those two categories and see how he uses these image images to show them the way out of, of the way out of like a salty nasty cookie into a nice warm chocolate chip cookie right and to becoming the church where heaven invades earth so verses four to eight then verses four to eight show us Emmaus as a garden Emmaus as a garden that this is how we should conceive of ourselves as a garden and you can see that very clear there in verse 4 where he says that, um, where he says, when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, so you're not merely being human. Who then is Apollos and Paul? Servants, workers there, of through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, 
So here's the agricultural image. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So you have this agricultural image of planting, watering, and growing crops. This is, as I said, a very pervasively biblical image that we see all through the scriptures, which is why we read Genesis chapters 1 and 2 this morning. Um, that we see it start in Genesis 1 and 2. To see that God created the world and he placed humankind in the world in a garden. He told them in chapter 2 and verse 15, the last verse that we read, that their job was to tend to and keep the garden. That they were to work in the garden, that they were to manage the creation that God had given them. And he, God, But God, as we see here, he not only plants it, he sustains it. And he was in the garden with them, living in harmony, peace, and a joy, a sort of blissful utopia. It was heaven for them on earth in the garden. And he gives them a job. Take care of it. Keep it. Manage it. And there we not only see that human labor and work is a dignified task, the kind of work that Paul did in planting a church and in other kinds of work, uh, but we can see that it comes before sin enters the world. And in particular, what we find is that the work of agriculture is like the oldest job there is in humankind. It's like, it's the one job, farming, that came before the fall, right? <laughs> it's like, if there was the most pure job on the earth, it would be out with Josh cutting down trees and managing a field, right? <laughs> Which is why he even goes and chops wood. Right? <laughs> it's because we're men. Yeah. <laughs> but what happens in chapter 3 in Genesis, as we all know, Adam and Eve sin, and they're driven from the garden into the wilderness, out of God's presence, and literally everything... Everything from Genesis chapter 3 all the way into the book of Revelation in the scripture is God rescuing humanity from the wilderness by going out into the wilderness to, to meet them and delivering them back to Eden, to take them back to the place where they are in the garden with God and um, experiencing basically heaven on earth with God, which is why we have the new heavens and the new earth and all of that. And this is all, and so be, because of that, the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, is just absolutely packed with garden imagery. And imagery of working the land, and not only working the land, but, but just imagery of agriculture uh, used to describe the way God is working in and among his people. So this is going to get a little nerdy for a second. Well, for a few minutes. So just hang on with me. Because if you like biblical theology and you like thinking about this kind of thing, this will be fun. If not, just hang on. Okay. So, we find Im this imagery everywhere in the Old Testament. It shows up most clearly, most poignantly, in the promise that God would give the Israelite people that they would have a land flowing with milk and honey. God is saying, I'm taking you to the garden. I'm going to put you in the garden. It's why the prophets, almost all of them, picture the future of God's people as enjoying a temple with a river coming out of it, and that river leads to a beautiful bountiful garden. It's where God is taking you. You read the prophets, it's in almost every one of them. They talk about this beautiful garden that comes out of God's temple. And the temple itself, the temple itself, you read through the construction of the temple in the Old Testament, all of it is 
full of garden imagery. Going into the temple is going into the garden, essentially. It's why Noah, when he gets off the ark, what's the first thing he does? He plants a vineyard. He makes a garden. Um, he's, it, it, God is in destroying sin in the world and saving Noah. The intention is we're going to create a new garden for man and God to dwell in together. It's why God leaves. This is so cool. This is what I love. I love seeing this work out through the arc of the story of the Bible. When you see Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, the first thing that God does after he saves them from Egypt is he finds a way to get in and among his people in the wilderness. He leaves the garden and he goes into the wilderness to be with them. And so when you come to the New Testament, you find the same image and it's poignantly pointing to Jesus because that's exactly what God does in Jesus. In Jesus, God comes into the wilderness, he takes on the flesh of humankind and well, you find garden imagery like this everywhere. The parable of the sower. Jesus is talking about the gospel going out like seed. You see the parables of the kingdom. All, almost all the parables of the kingdom have some sort of agricultural uh, sort of vibe to them. That Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We're called to bear forth fruit. It's just pervasive. And then to top it all off, this is the cherry on top. This week as we celebrate Easter and all of that, Jesus, as he goes into Jerusalem, we see this scene of him as king coming in, and he goes to an odd place, a place that you should be able to expect when you, uh, when you read the arc of the story, the line of the Bible, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes into the garden, and what's he doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying. He's communing with God. And so we see this beautiful imagery of Jesus pouring his heart out to God and engaging God in prayer, calling the disciples to join him in communing with God while they're falling asleep, right? So you just see the beautiful... And then what happens is Jesus willingly allows himself to be arrested, removed from the garden, taken out into the wilderness where he pays for sin and sets people free from their sin. And then he's buried in the garden tomb only to rise out of the garden tomb in victory over sin and victory over death. So it's just, this is just pervasive. We can go into the book of Revelation, but I don't, I don't want to over, overwork it. But the point is, the church then, when Jesus rises from the dead and the Holy Spirit comes in upon his people, is you find the Holy Spirit coming into the new temple, the new people of God that are going to bring the garden to the earth. This is why Jesus, before he leaves, says that all authority is given to me to go therefore into the world, making disciples of all nations. The point is, is that as we go out, as we plant churches, as we reach people with the gospel, that we're bringing the garden of Eden. We're bringing the garden that Christ brought us through his death and resurrection into the world through that way. And it's and that's why we got Acts 2 with the church being filled with the Holy Spirit and going out and doing that. Um, so, when we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, we see their mess. We can look at it and we can say, okay, that church is not where heaven and earth overlap. This is not the Garden of Eden. This is not new heaven on earth. And so Paul wants to give them this imagery to capture their imagination and to help them see the implications of what that means for their relationships to one another. And so he points them to this. They thought the church was about building their own brand building status, 
finding a guru and starting and joining a movement. They didn't understand that the church is the miracle of God to bring heaven and earth together through the preaching of the gospel. They just, they, they forgot that. They, they missed that. And so why does Paul here use the language he uses? And the answer is simple. He, he uses it to correct their vision of what the church is. When you understand what the church is supposed to be and you see factions, you know, oh, wait a minute. That's not, that's not heaven on earth. That's not heaven on earth. But he also, he wanted them to understand through using this imagery that the church is about God. Just like the garden was about God. God owned it. God planted it. God did the work. It was ultimately God's influence and his power that made the garden what it was. Not Adam and Eve. They were just there to keep it intended. They were handmaidens. They were laborers in God's world. And what happened with the church was they thought, well, this is Paul's world, or this is Apollos' world. This is some human endeavor. Whether their skill or their effort, they didn't realize, oh, this is God's garden. And this, and so he calls them to that. And we can <coughs> see that clearly in verses 6 and 7. That God gave the growth. And he goes so far as to say that Paul himself, he's talking about himself and Apollos, <laughs> they're nothing compared to God. Their, their work is virtually nothing because it's ultimately it's God and his work. We get confused when we see gifted, competent people lead. We tend to think they're the reason things are flourishing. And leaders, people like me, tend to think we're the reason that things are flourishing, right? We get a big head and we think, oh, well, I preached a really good sermon or, you know, I really, you know handled those kids well or whatever like you know the things depend upon us as if we're the ones uh that that we could think thoughts like this place would fall apart without me or something like that um or we just develop critical attitudes toward what other leaders because they seem lesser gifted in one area thinking that the individual is going to make or break what happens in the church and so this generates a kind of competition it generates critical attitude and it creates a context in which people are at odds with one another and begin to splinter off. And what God wants us to do is see, okay, no, that come, the root problem here is that you just don't understand what the church is. This is God's work, it's his garden, and we're just here to participate in it. The quality of the farmer, in essence, is irrelevant. Now, I'm going to give you a little Hebrew lesson because I think this is fun, so we're going to nerd out for a minute. In Genesis 1 and 2... There's some Hebrew language here that helps reinforce this. Um, if you don't know anything about Hebrew, and it's fine, you don't need to know anything. There's this verb called a hifil. Say hifil. Hifil, right? The hifil verb. It's a verb of causation. Now, there's a bunch of different kinds of verbs. There's passive verbs. There's active verbs and all different you know, kinds of verbs throughout uh, Genesis chapter 1. But you find sprinkled in there in really strategic places this his, hifil verb. Um, and it, and it, it's a verb that's intended to describe an action that someone intentionally causes. They're, they're, it's, they are the actor bringing about the result. It's a verb of causation. And so in chapter 1, you see in verses 4 and 7, the hifil being used when it says that God separated the heavens from the earth or he separated the waters from the land. That's in the hifil, that God is doing this action. Or in verse 11, uh, where he's talking about the different plants yielding fruit and growing and the trees coming forth, all of that language there about sprouting and yielding, that's all in the hifil, that God is the one doing this. He is the cause of all of this. 
And that's not just a nerdy thing to, to know. It, it speaks to what Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that the garden is the place where God rules and he makes things happen. And when we understand that, we can see where our place is in the world when it comes to serving in the church. When you see that the church, when you see the church as God's garden of Eden come into the world, the emergence of heaven and earth, you can't help but see that this is God's work, not ours, right? It humbles us. It helps us to see that we are all just co-farmers, just keeping what he has grown. Um, we don't need to, we need to be careful that we not make a big, too big of a deal about ourselves, whether in a positive way or in a negative way. And how we do that is by seeing that God, that we are keepers in God's garden. None of us are competent enough to make the garden grow, and none of us are incompetent enough to stop God from growing it. And that means that we're free to just serve and love one another, which is, which is an amazing thing. And when we do that, people come in and they're like, oh, this is a warm chocolate chip cookie, right? So, okay, second point here. So the church is a garden. And then the church is a temple. This is going to be much shorter. Um, like I said, this is not going to be an hour and a half sermon. So but the church is a temple. I could spend three hours on this, but we're only going to spend a couple minutes. So when God created the world, Genesis 1 and 2, he didn't just make a garden. He made a temple. The world was God's temple. And in the world, people, he was not only present with his people, he was also communing with his people and enjoying life with his people. The earth was created to be the temple. The whole earth was to be God's temple. A place where he would be worshipped and communed with. And as we walk through the Old Testament, we see that the tabernacle and then eventually the temple are pointing to this reality. Places where God would come and invade his people, dwell among them, and allow them to eat and drink with him. Then God brought his actual temple, Jesus. I mean, that's what Jesus says about himself. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to rise it up again. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament imagery and promises of the temple. He is the temple in, the per in a person. And just like the temple being destroyed by the Babylonians in the Old Testament and then rebuilt, so also Jesus was crucified and raised three days later, resurrected as the rebuilt temple. And as the new temple was raised this time, unlike the second temple in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God actually comes and fills this one. And that's what the book of Acts is about. The Spirit of God coming and filling the temple of those who are in Christ um, in, in the book of Acts. So this text here shows us that the church is God's building. God's temple. This is why he says there so clearly down there in verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Do you not know... That you are the place where God is going to dwell just like in Eden. Emmaus is not just a garden, it's God's building, it's his temple, and he is to drop, he's gonna, he is here with us. And the Corinthians, they saw the church differently. They didn't see it as a temple, they didn't see it as a garden, they saw it as a stage. They saw it as a stage for different players to get on and display gifts and to gather attention and influence for themselves. The church was a platform to join a tribe or follow a leader. But that's not God's vision of the church. And this is why Paul is giving them this imagery. He wants them to reorient their vision of the church to not only see it as a garden, but to see it as a temple. And that also has implications. If a church is a temple, then it matters how we build it. 
It says there in verses 10 down through and following, he says that we're supposed to take care how we build the temple and to use precious stones that are going to withstand God's judgment and God's discipline, not wood, hay, and stubble. He says that we are to be careful in how we build the church. Um, that Because if we build a stage, then we're going to build something that's about us, where we go and perform. But if we're building a temple, then we need to build something where God comes and where God puts himself on display. And that requires different kinds of things. This is why the Old Testament tabernacle and temple were built with precious items. People brought their gold. They brought precious items. And they built with ornate and extremely expensive items. They would build the place where God would be worshipped. Um, this is why uh, in Solomon's temple, people from all over the world would come just to look at it because it was so beautiful and so ornate. Um, and the reason for this is because this is what, not only what God deserves, but it, it's also a picture of Eden. When we read in Genesis chapter 2, what did you find in Eden in chapter 2? That there's all these beautiful, ornate jewels in the ground and these beautiful rivers and so the temple of God would, would have to include that because that's where, God, that's where God's presence dwells, is in Eden. And so he brings Eden in the form of the temple, tabernacle. He brings Eden in the form of the church. And this has both material and immaterial realities. Paul here is speaking primarily of the immaterial here in terms of human relationships, that we build relationships with precious gems, that we build the church body and our communion with one another with precious gems which means the very best of things that we can do primarily i think the the fruits of the holy spirit love joy peace patience kindness gentleness self-control goodness forgot that one i always forget that one but he does that in order to show us that when we walk with the spirit and we're walking with god in the garden we build the church together in a way that lasts in a way that when people come in they're like yes this is heaven on earth it feels like it looks like and the experience is like heaven on earth and that's what god is calling us to it's what he calls it's what he calls the corinthians to it's what he calls us to but notice also in building the temple he he points out here very clearly and i think the point of pointing us to the temple here is he points to the foundation of the temple the cornerstone of it that the cornerstone of god's the foundation of God's interaction with humankind in the temple, in the world, in the church, is the gospel. It's the found, he says that Jesus Christ is the, found, is the cornerstone upon which the whole thing is built. He is the foundation of our fellowship and of our work. And it's through the gospel, it's through Christ's death, his resurrection, uh, and his victory over our sin, that everything in the church is to be built upon. And that's why we say we're a gospel-centered church, right? That's why we say our delight is to be in Jesus, not in the preaching ministry of Luke, which can be boring and long-winded, right? But to be in Christ and what he has done and his work to save us from our sins. The gospel is to be our orienting principle upon which everything is built. And when we do that, the fruit, not only is God's spirit present and heaven invading earth, but the spiritual fruits of God's spirit begin to manifest and those are the things that are going to last through through eternity those are the things that make our our fellowship sweet and like a taste of heaven on earth so Emmaus Jesus exercised his power as king and rode that donkey into Jerusalem 
this week so that he could rise from the dead and make us an outpost of Eden and a taste of, it, of heaven in Ankeny. That means we can actually do this. We can actually realize that goal in the grace of God by the power of the gospel. It's not rhetoric to say that we want to be the place where heaven and earth overlap. This is what God is doing through church planting. This is what God is doing in giving us the church. It is the reason why we meet. And to say that we want heaven to uh, invade Ankeny through the church is just another way of saying that we're delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. That's where all of that comes from. And God has guaranteed us this through the work of Christ and through his work to bring us back into the garden. So by the grace of the gospel, live into the fact that we're a garden and we're a temple. And I believe that as we do that, uh, people will come in and find us a, a delicious cookie together. <laughs> so let's pray and ask God's help with that.